1: Breaking news. A deal passed to avert what would have been, could have been a crippling rail strike. The lead starts right now. The final vote in the U.S. Senate called just moments ago. I'm going to speak with the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, fresh off his Hill visit to fast track and preserve today's deal. And a letter bomb sent to an American embassy. The security has been stepped up after a series of these suspicious deliveries. Plus, The manipulative man behind the abrupt collapse of the crypto company FTX.
2: I mean, look, I screwed up. You
1: think? What else the quote monster says about scamming customers and watching their life savings evaporate? Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with breaking news in our politics lead. Just moments ago, the Senate passed a bill that would help avoid a catastrophic rail strike, one that was expected to start within days. Now the legislation, which had already passed the House of Representatives, heads to President Biden's resolute desk for signing. Just a few hours ago, it looked as though the agreement could be derailed with members of both parties, Democrats and Republicans, demanding paid sick leave for the union rail workers. CNN's Manu Raju starts off our coverage from Capitol Hill with an inside look at how this deal came together just minutes ago.
3: The Senate averting a devastating blow to the U.S. economy, voting to prevent a railway strike after a tense week of negotiations. On the one hand, we don't want to
4: shut down the economy. On the other, we don't want to say to rail workers... If
3: you have a heart attack or you break your leg, you either show up to work or you're going to lose your job. Lawmakers recognizing that a strike could have disrupted food supplies and intensified sky-high inflation... And send the economy reeling. Do you have concerns about Congress intervening here? Of course. Got concerns also about a rail shutdown, so that's one consider. Tentative deal, now enforced by Congress, was brokered by the Biden administration, major railways, and eight of 12 labor unions. But that plan lacks paid sick leave for workers, so progressives on Capitol Hill demanded that the Senate guarantee at least seven days for rail workers.
5: It would be an absolute outrage. If these workers did not get at least seven days paid sick leave. So this is a small number of dollars for their bottom line um, to, to take care of their workers the way that they should.
3: President Biden defended the deal at the White House today when now, questioned on paid sick leave. What i made it really clear is that what was negotiated was so much better than anything they ever had. But the amendment to mandate paid sick leave fell eight votes shy of the 60 needed for passage. Amid opposition from most Republicans who say that Congress should not dictate the terms of the negotiations. Moderate Democrat Joe Manchin agreed. I concerned about us
6: jumping into that when you have eight unions have agreed to the package that they negotiated with
5: the, with the Department of Labor and with the president. I'm very reluctant on the other for us to jump in and set a precedent.
3: Behind the scenes, the lobbying campaign intensified. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joining a private lunch of Senate Democrats and demanding action.
6: The Senate cannot leave until we get the job done.
3: While Republicans have been skeptical, the plan winning the support of Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell, even as the top House Republican Kevin McCarthy opposed the deal when it passed the House on Wednesday.
7: The whole law is a
3: so the vote was a bipartisan one in the Senate that just closed just minutes ago. The vote was 80 to 15, and 80 voting yes, 15 voting against it. Five of those no votes were Democrats. Ten of those appear to be Republicans. There was one Republican voted present, that Senator Rand Paul. So after a week of back and forth, Jake, a bipartisan vote in the Senate gets essentially moves forward on this tentative agreement without the paid sick leave that many progressives demanded.
1: And conservatives as well. Manu Raju, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Mr. Secretary, the bill just passed the Senate despite objections from members of both parties who wanted paid sick leave to be included. Why are you okay passing a deal that does not guarantee paid sick leave for these union workers?
8: Well, first of all, the importance of this deal is that a rail shutdown is being avoided. If that were to happen, we would have seen hundreds of thousands of American workers laid off, uh, energy prices shooting up once refineries were unable to continue operating, uh, issues getting chlorine to uh, water treatment plants, uh, auto industry uh, factories shutting down within hours, uh, if, uh, if not days, uh, of that happening. So what, what we've been able to avoid uh, is a major blow to workers, farms, families, these across the country. Not everybody got what they wanted in this deal. But what was enacted is something that mirrors what was reached in the tentative agreement at the negotiating table between union leaders and railroad companies. What that includes is a 24% pay increase for railroad workers. They are essential workers who deserve to be paid well, on average, uh, $100,000 or so in pay. Uh, It includes uh, adjustments to their health care, an additional day of paid personal leave. Uh, But again, not not a perfect deal. And uh, uh, every side had to uh, give in uh, something in those negotiations to reach that deal. I think there's an ongoing conversation in this country about how to make sure that workers in this sector and in every sector uh, get the support that they need. But right now, what you have is a deal that is improving pay and work conditions for American railroad workers, and crucially, avoiding a shutdown that would have been devastating to the American economy.
1: Without question, the shutdown would have been devastating to the American economy, and I think everybody out there is glad that it has been avoided. But the question is, these these rail lines, they're making billions of dollars. Profits are up for all of them, quite a lot In, in some cases. You and I have paid sick leave. My crew has paid sick leave. Why don't these railway workers deserve paid sick leave?
8: Well, let me remind you, the position of our administration is that every American worker ought to have paid leave whether you're a railroad worker a journalist a federal government employee uh, or whether you work at burger king we we believe that every american worker certainly every full time american worker ought to have paid leave the president has proposed that Uh, The president has advanced that in proposed legislation. And so far, uh, it has been unable to get past uh, what has been unified Senate Republican opposition. Uh, We are going to continue to press for that. Again, uh, not just picking and and choosing one sector over another, but based on the basic idea that every single American worker ought to have paid leave, just like you have in pretty much every country in the world. But But for now. Right now, the tentative agreement that was reached at the bargaining table between union leaders and companies contains provisions like this pay raise and other improvements. Right.
1: I, I get it. But saying that they ought to have paid sick leave and then getting in there and saying to the, the, to the Warren Buffetts of the world, give these guys paid sick leave or the White House is going to make you guys out to be the bad guys. And you're going to be the ones that are forced to blink after your reputations take a number of hits. That's a different matter. We've heard from multiple union workers who feel like the Biden administration has let them down. Uh, Gabe Christensen, a freight railroad uh, brakeman who lives in Nevada, he told CNN, quote, here we have someone, meaning Biden, who touted themselves as the most labor friendly president for many decades. And he basically just betrayed us. There really is no difference between Democrats and Republicans anymore. They're just feeding corporate greed, unquote. What do you say to Gabe
8: Christensen? Well, if you don't think there's any difference, uh, you should look at the difference between this president, who has advanced uh, good-paying jobs, who has made sure the National Labor Relations Board is uh, able to do its job, who has put in uh, the uh, first card-carrying union member uh, to be labor secretary in a generation, who has upheld everything from uh, Davis-Bacon wages to uh, the the kind of working conditions to make sure that uh, unions can thrive, because he believes strongly in American unions, in organized labor, uh, and is proud to be the most most actively pro-union president in a generation. Again, that doesn't mean everybody uh, got everything that they wanted, and we need to have a broader conversation about the labor models and the business practices of transportation companies uh, in this country. And I think that conversation's uh, going to continue and will reach a new phase as soon as the ink is dry on this bill. But in the meantime, what you have is a tentative agreement that was reached by union leaders and company leaders at the bargaining table, and uh, there simply were not votes Uh, as we saw, not the votes in the Senate uh, for sure, uh, to go in and change the terms of what was uh, reached at that table. And this is not a situation where uh, you can play around, where you can allow things to come to the brink, even before the date, of a potential shutdown, several days before that, uh, you would have seen shipments begin to wind down, hazardous materials, potentially including chlorine for water treatment in this country, not able to get to where it needed to go. Uh, So this is a situation where we couldn't allow brinksmanship uh, to override the economic and national security of this country, but we are far from done as an administration uh, doing our continued work to create good-paying jobs, uh, to support union jobs, and again, uh, continuing to to press the case for paid leave for every single American in every single job well, in this what
1: country. What does it mean to to press the case if you're not willing to like actually go to these these billionaires and say, how on earth can you sleep at night not letting your railway workers have paid sick leave, which is just like that? I mean, that's that's not an extravagant benefit. Paid sick leave. You get sick. You get to take a few days off. They don't have that. So I guess these lofty aspirations are one thing, but I didn't hear any language coming from the administration saying these rail companies need to get serious about, about offering basic, basic benefits like paid sick leave. I didn't hear that. So uh, I understand where Gabe Christensen is coming
8: from. Well, again, what this administration supported was what the union leaders and the company leaders agreed to uh, and did not insert changes into Uh, the agreement because uh, that would have likely added time and complication to a process uh, that would have taken us off the cliff economically. But let me be clear. Very specific legislative proposals have come from this administration uh, advancing paid leave. And uh, if uh, friends on the other side of the aisle would work with us, uh, we could have had that and we could have that in the future. Uh, And that's going to continue to be something we work on. Uh, In the meantime, what we have now is millions of Americans who uh, can breathe a sigh of relief knowing that everything from uh, baby formula, to milk, to uh, petroleum uh, products that that affect the price of gasoline, uh, to uh, treatment materials for, for water, to all of the other things we count on, will continue moving. And the workers, the essential workers who get them where they need to go, uh, not only have uh, an additional day of paid personal leave per the agreement that was reached, uh, but also a 24 percent pay increase.
1: Yeah. Obviously, not every labor leader was on board with that plan, but there were some that were uh, transportation secretary pete Buttigieg's thanks and, and congratulations on averting the major crisis but i, I think that there's still is some work to be done on the on the paid leave uh... paid sick leave uh... that we talked about thank you Agreed. so much for being with us i appreciate it thank you the red carpet laid out for french president emmanuel macron today what he and president biden discussed at length in a three-hour meeting and the controversial item on the menu for tonight's state dinner Plus, the message from police in Idaho that is creating more confusion in the community after the killings of four college students. And just in, a Supreme Court decision impacting President Biden's plan to cancel student loans. Stay with us. We're back with our world lead President Biden hosting French President Emmanuel Macron today for his first state visit since moving into the West Wing. The two say, they discussed the Russian invasion of Ukraine at length and M. Putin, and how to further support the Ukrainians fighting back against Putin. As CNN's Phil Mattingly reports for us now, President Biden says he is willing to meet with Putin, but only under certain circumstances.
9: On a day carefully calibrated to elevate a critical
10: alliance. Mr. Putin is, let me choose my words very carefully.
9: President Biden signaling a willingness to open a line of communication with Russian President Vladimir Putin.
10: I'm prepared to speak with Mr. Putin if, in fact, there is an interest in him deciding he's looking for a way to end the war. With clear preconditions. He hasn't done that yet. If that's the case, in consultation with my French and my NATO friends, I'll be happy to sit down with Putin to see what he wants, has in mind. He hasn't done that yet.
9: The brutal war in Ukraine now in its ninth month at the center of a three-hour sit-down with French President Emmanuel Macron.
10: Well, it's great to have my good friend back here. After which,
9: Macron was explicit in his commitment not to circumvent Ukraine in any peace talks.
10: We will never urge the Ukrainians to make a
9: compromise which will not be acceptable for them. Biden's first state visit underscored the value and durability White House officials see in the relationship with America's longest-running ally with two leaders going to great lengths to demonstrate their unity. And iron out clear-cut differences. And I make no apologies. Biden, moving to clearly address French concerns with sweeping subsidies included in his cornerstone economic and climate
10: legislation. But there are occasions when you write a massive piece of legislation, and that has almost $368 billion for the largest investment in climate change on all of all of history. And so there's obviously going to be glitches in it. And providing assurances that issue would be addressed. I'm confident. (laughs) It's my answer. From a crone, a day, and a
9: dinner underscoring a White House view of a relationship that has only grown in its importance in Biden's first two years. One driven, officials say, by a genuine personal connection.
10: I I began to refer to him privately as my closer.
9: A connection that has become critical in a moment when geopolitical threats have rattled alliances worldwide.
10: France is one of our strongest partners and historically, but uh, one of our strongest partners and our most capable allies. And, uh, and uh, Manuel has also become a friend, in addition to being president of that great country.
9: And Jake, that three hour meeting behind closed doors is certainly at the center of the visit. But obviously, the main event is the dinner in just a couple of hours. Several hundred guests are expected to arrive for the first state dinner for President Biden. There will be dancing, there will be dinner, a real commingling of French and American traditions and colors. John Baptiste, the Grammy winning artist, is scheduled to perform, Jake.
1: And, Phil, uh, there's a controversy about one of the main dishes being served at the state dinner. Tell us about that.
9: Yeah, main dish, that's actually a good way to frame it. It's lobsters, 200 live lobsters sent down from the state of Maine. You'd think it would thrill Maine politicians, uh, Maine fisheries and and lobstermen. However, it is at the center of a regulatory uh, and, and legislative battle that's been ongoing for a long time, from conservationists that would like uh, the lobstermen basically to stop getting the lobsters that they do. this is such a central component of Maine's economy right now. And there's some frustration that regulatory actions by the administration run counter to the idea of wanting to support or bring down those lobsters. As for the moment, White House officials are not really weighing in on the matter, but Maine politicians are making very clear if it's good enough for the White House, it should be good enough for any uh, grocery store or certainly uh, regulators. Jake?
1: Yeah, so Congressman Jared Golden, the Democrat from Maine's Very uh, competitive second district weighing in against his fellow Democrat Joe Biden there. Phil Mattingly, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the new message from police in Idaho creating confusion three weeks now after four college students were tragically stabbed to death there. Stay with us. Topping our national lead today, contradictory statements from Idaho police are creating confusion 18 days after four University of Idaho students were found dead in their apartment. Hundreds came together in a moving vigil last night where families of the slain students shared memories and moments of silence. CNN's Veronica Miracles in Moscow, Idaho, where police are facing scrutiny not only for an apparent lack of progress in solving the case, but for confusing a grieving public. We still believe it's a targeted attack.
11: From the beginning, police repeatedly calling the stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students a targeted attack, even issuing a statement saying evidence indicates that this was a targeted attack.
8: Somebody targeted these individuals for some
6: reason.
11: But last night a new statement led to confusion about whether the police stood by that theory. The department posting detectives do not currently know if the residents or any occupants were specifically targeted but continued to investigate. That statement brought a flurry of headlines suggesting police were doing an about face. But they now tell CNN their post was in response to comments made by Laytaw County Prosecutor Bill Thompson, who said in an interview that the home of the victims, and specifically one or two of the roommates, may have been targeted. That alone is what police say they are clarifying, telling CNN, we remain consistent in our belief that this was indeed a targeted attack, but have not concluded if the target was the residents or its occupants. We're the police the chief reaffirming that this
12: morning. Why you believe it's it was targeted? or the reasons, are so crucial to the investigation that they cannot be revealed?
8: And we are not going to reveal that. That's part of that investigation, trying to pull the pieces in
13: that will help give us the before, the during, and the after.
11: Police have towed all of the cars from in front of the home and confirmed they've received some lab tests back from the crime scene, though they won't say what they are. Meanwhile, the Moscow community is in mourning. As they gathered at a candlelight vigil Wednesday night, several of the victims' families spoke about their tremendous loss.
14: The circumstances that bring us here tonight, they're terrible. The hardest part, we cannot change the outcome. And they also
11: spoke about what comforts them during this difficult time.
3: They shared everything. They eventually get into the same apartment together. And in the end, they died together in the same room, in the same bed.
11: And Jake, the heavy police presence continues here in the community of Moscow and on campus. But for how much longer at the University of Idaho, that is unclear. Students get out next week for the rest of the semester and they don't come back until mid-January. The University of Idaho tells me they're going to be revisiting their security plans as this investigation continues to unfold. Jake.
1: All right, Veronica Miracle in Moscow, Idaho, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN counterterrorism analyst and former FBI senior intelligence officer Phil Mudd. Phil, we know that DNA test results are starting to come in. Uh, do you have any confidence that uh, a suspect could be identified in the next few days as a result of that?
13: I would not say confidence. Uh, hope might be a better term. Look, there's going to be a lot of data you have to look through. There's going to be we know there's six residents there. There's also reports. There was a lot of social activity at the House. So how much DNA, for example, hairs from other people is picked up? Can you determine whether those hairs were from visitors at a party two weeks ago or whether those hairs who are not from the people in the house might be related to the killer? I think that's going to take some time. On the reverse, Jake, I'd say if you have four physical attacks with interaction, including defensive wounds on the murder victims, the chance that the killer thought enough ahead to leave no evidence that police could find. I'm hoping they find some because that's a lot of physical interaction to leave nothing behind, Jake.
1: Well, that's what I'm wondering. Are you surprised that 18 days later, there's been, as far as we can tell, no suspect name, no weapon found? I mean, it's it's almost three weeks. Maybe the public has been spoiled uh, from entertainment versions of investigations. And maybe 18 days is actually not that long. But give us your take.
13: Uh, I would say beyond surprise, very surprised, because you're not just talking about the many interviews with friends and family. You're talking about a relatively small community. But in the digital age, you can track everything. These are a lot of what what these young people were doing in the previous weeks through things like text messages. We've seen a lot of video from the locations they're at before which not only allows us to look at the timeline of where they were, but who they talked to, you know, every person they took a class with in the last year, or two years, you know, every, every uh, neighbor they've had for years. So in the digital age, you can get a trail, you can get a pattern of life far different than you could have 20 years ago. And with the amount of investigation on this, to not have a significant advance, I'm not criticizing the police. I am saying that's pretty
1: surprising. The FBI has been investigating alongside uh, the local Idaho police, Uh, mostly helping gathering tips, we're told. Uh, Do you think the FBI should have a bigger role in this case, perhaps a more public role, perhaps even the primary role, uh, considering A, how little apparent progress there has been made almost three weeks into this, and, and B, the fact that the police have been making some inconsistent statements?
13: I don't think the FBI should have a more significant role unless the state and locals ask for a more significant role. The FBI has relationships with more than 10,000 police departments across the country. That has everything to do with things like abductions, to bank robberies, to support, in this case, for murders. The typical role for the FBI is if it's a local case and you want assistance, there's not a federal violation, we provide assistance. If the FBI got into the position of telling police departments we're taking over because we think you're incompetent, Jake, I don't want to see that world because the cooperation with local police departments, I think, would decline dramatically. We don't want that.
1: Is it not true that the longer this goes on, the tougher it will be to find the killer?
13: Yeah, that's going to be true. I mean, you look at the case resolution rates and everything in the data will show you that. There's a flip side of this, though, and if you And that is if you look at things like the FBI's most wanted category of people, anybody who did this, who thinks they can cover their tracks for a year or five years or 10 years, the data don't bear that out. If there's a high end investigation where investigators keep hunting for years, the chance, even if we have the tragedy of someone escaping for a month or three months or six months, the chance they escape forever, not that high, I think.
1: All right, Phil Mudd, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a series of letter bombs sent in Spain. What happened when one was delivered to the U.S. Embassy? We'll tell you next. We start this world lead in Spain, which is on high alert after the discovery of six letter bombs. Police in Spain say that targets included the United States and the Ukrainian embassies in Madrid, as well as Spain's prime minister, Spain's defense minister, and arms manufacturer, and a Spanish Air Force base. A staffer at the Ukrainian embassy in Spain was hurt when an envelope exploded. The rest of the bombs were intercepted or deactivated before they reached their intended targets. Let's bring in CNN's Kylie Atwood at the State Department. Kylie, investigators believe that some of these letters may have originated in Ukraine?
0: Well, yeah. A senior uh, Spanish official said that they believe that uh, this letter bomb that arrived at the weapons manufacturer in northern spain apparently originated in ukraine but that's not definitive and we've also heard from other spanish officials that some of these mysterious packages uh, were likely to have originated in spain So the question as to where they originated, what the actual motivation of these mail bombs actually is, is still an open question, Jake. And, of course, we should note that the mysterious package that was sent to the U.S. Embassy in Spain just today was intercepted, and it was detonated in a controlled environment. No one in that situation was hurt.
1: Kyle, let's turn to another story that we've been following. Um, Today, the spokesman for the Kremlin, Dmitry Peskov, said that Russia is not going to engage with the United States on a proposed prisoner swap before the end of 2022. That, that sounds like unwelcome news for the families and def- of and detained Americans, Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan.
0: Definitely unwelcome news, but it is challenging, as you well know, to parse through the statements of Russian officials, uh, particularly when they are at times at odds with one another, because just a few days ago we heard from the deputy Russian foreign ministry, uh, minister saying that it wasn't altogether off the table, that there could be a prisoner swap before the end of the year. Of course, uh, the thing that is of the front and foremost concern to U.S. officials right now is Paul Whelan, because uh, his whereabouts in Russia right now is unclear. His family has been told that he has been moved to a a hospital at the prison, Um, but Russian authorities have not definitively told the U.S. embassy that, as far as we know, and he has not called his home. He usually talks to his family just about every single day. They haven't heard from him in a week, and that includes not calling home on Thanksgiving and not on his father's own birthday, so raising Mm. some concerns there. James. All right,
1: Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us. Thank you so much. Now to Ukraine. U.S. officials tell CNN the United States is considering a dramatic expansion in the training that the U.S. provides to Ukrainian forces. That deal would include training 2,500 Ukrainian soldiers every month at a U.S. base in Germany. While Ukraine's army has made some remarkable recent gains, Russia is clawing back some ground on the eastern front of Donetsk. CNN's Sam Kylie is in the eastern Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk. And Sam, Your team heard heavy artillery fire throughout the day. Uh, What is going on there? How are Russian forces faring?
15: Well, Jake, we can still hear it going on in the distance, the distance rumble of uh, detonations, uh, outgoing and incoming, I would imagine, possibly airstrikes too. It has been uh, by any standards, and we have only got the verbal communications from Ukrainian troops, but we're also seeing the postings made by Russian troops, that this is a very, very bitter battle indeed. I spoke to a foreign fighter, foreign volunteer earlier on today. He uh, lost a friend. He said he had a friend die on him today. And that is the pattern, I'm afraid, from the Ukrainian perspective. They are losing troops there. They're saying that they're killing more than they are losing. And they also can't quite understand why exactly Bakhmut represents such a prize that they would invest it, this is the Russians, why would they would invest it with so much blood and so much energy, so much violence, when it doesn't really, from a Ukrainian perspective, represent a particularly important strategic site. Their only explanation from the Ukrainians is Jake, that, the, that the Russians need a victory after their losses in the northeast, here around Kharkiv in particular, but also more recently in uh, Kherson. There's also suggestions coming from Ukrainian commanders here that possibly the Wagner group, which is known to be fighting there, those are the mercenaries, the Russian mercenaries, are able to buy more sophisticated equipment which might give them an edge, particularly at night. Uh, they're seeing uh, some slight change in Russian tactics and there have been some small gains by the Russians as they seek to encircle that city. But it's about uh, 25, 30 kilometers from where I'm standing now and there'd be an awfully lot a terrific amount of fighting ahead of the Russians, even if they were to capture that town, because where I'm standing here is their ultimate prize. And they're a very long way from that, Jake.
1: All right, Sam Kiley in Ukraine. Thank you so much. Coming up, the man who created a crypto nightmare. He's been called a monster, a manipulator, how he is kind of trying to possibly fess up to the mess he made. That's next. back now with our money lead and this admission quote a lot of people got hurt and that's on me unquote those comments from sam bankman fried the disgraced ex-ceo of the now collapsed cryptocurrency exchange ftx much to his lawyers likely dismay bankman fried will not stop talking in two new interviews he was pressed on what he knew about transfers of customers money from ftx to a separate hedge fund that he owned here's more now from cnn's mark stewart Look,
2: I screwed up.
6: Sam Bankman-Fried was once seen as the wonder kid on the crypto scene. Now he's the face of a massive failure. He claims his billion-dollar empire has now been whittled down to about 100 k in a bank account.
2: I was CEO. I, I was the CEO of FTX. And I mean, I would say this again and again, that that means I had a responsibility. Customers
6: around the world are scrambling to recover funds following the collapse of the one-time multi-billion dollar business. Bankman Freed shrugged off the comparison to Bernie Madoff, the man behind one of the biggest financial fraud schemes in history. A lot of people look at you and see Bernie Madoff.
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's who I am at, at all, but I understand why they're saying that. People lost money. And... People lost a lot of money. And I mean, at the end of the day, look, there's a question of what happened and why, and who did what, um, what caused the, the meltdown. And I think that is reads very differently, right? When you, when you look at the classic Bernie Madoff story, there was no real business. FTX, that was a real business. FTX used celebrity
6: endorsements from superstars like Tom Brady, Naomi Osaka, Steph Curry, even a Super Bowl ad featuring Larry David. But the big names can't cloud questions as to whether FTX improperly used investors' money to make loans to his hedge fund.
2: I did not know that there is any improper uh, use of customer funds.
6: You also took out a $1 billion loan. What
2: was that for? That was generally for reinvesting in the company.
6: As investors ponder what's next, Bankman-Fried admits he didn't pay attention in a business that's based
2: on trust. I wasn't spending any time or effort trying to manage risk on FTX, trying, like, and that, that obviously- That's that a stunning a admission.
16: What? That's a pretty stunning admission.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know what to say. Like, what happened happened. I think I, I stopped working as hard for a bit. You know, honestly, if I look back on myself- I think I got a little cocky. I made more than a little bit. Um, and I think part of me like felt like, like we'd made it.
1: Mark Stewart joins us now. Mark, the, the collapse of FTX is, is catch, capturing the attention of some lawmakers, including Democratic senators John Tester of Montana and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, who in interviews with semaphores Joseph Zabayos Rock. Uh, are calling out crypto, saying it's, quote, all bullshit, unquote. Uh, This is still a very unregulated industry.
6: And I think it remains to be seen, Jake, if there is going to be more regulation, if this is going to serve as a watershed moment. If we look back in history, the 2007-2008 financial crisis, the Bernie Madoff scandal, all of those events did lead to reform on Wall Street. Take a listen now to Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow.
4: Congress must act to pass legislation that will hold this industry to the same rules as traditional financial institutions and close gap gaping holes in our regulations. If we fail to meet this responsibility, consumers will continue to be harmed and hardworking Americans will continue to lose billions of dollars at the hands of bad actors like FTX. And, Jake, these
6: concerns are far from novel. This is something that the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission has been talking
1: about now for months. All right, Mark Stewart, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Coming up, controversy over the treatment of a black woman, a British citizen, inside Buckingham Palace, threatening to overshadow the royal visit to Boston by the prince and princess of Wales. William and Kate, our royal correspondent, Max Foster, is live for us in Boston right now. Max, CNN is now hearing from that woman about her experience.
17: Yeah, and she's basically continuing to talk about it because she said this is an issue that needs to be talked about. Uh, she was at an engagement at Buckingham Palace. She was there in her, she founded a domestic violence charity. It was a reception uh, recognizing the, the the blight of domestic violence. She was there in that capacity, but she got approached by a senior palace aide, and she was repeatedly asked where she was from, where in Africa she was from, where her people were from. And uh, she felt very uncomfortable. She wanted to leave, but she said she wanted to stay in the end because she realised she shouldn't have to feel uncomfortable in that situation. The aide has resigned and investigation is underway and today Ngozi Filani went on CNN to uh, try to educate people effectively about her experience so others could learn from it.
3: I'm standing next to two other black women and the look on their faces shows me that this is not my imagination. I'm not being You know, she's really going at it hard here. Then she said, I can see I'm going to have a challenge to get where you come from out of you, you know? So then she says, What's your nationality? Lady, I'm British.
17: Buckingham Palace saying they're reminding all staff of their diversity policy. This is a policy that was updated, Jake, after um, the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan, complained about racism within the royal establishment as well. Um, So there's certainly, uh, you know, a huge amount of upset within the palace about this incidents and they acted very quickly. But at the same time, a lot of people outside the palace are saying, well, you're not doing enough. You're not making enough progress. And there needs to be more diversity in the palace. Even Prince William saying this is uh, racism shouldn't be tolerated in any situation. And it's good that this aid stepped down immediately. Uh, as we understand it, according to UK media, this aide was in fact his godmother. So that shows how strongly he feels about it.
1: And uh, what's next for Prince William and Princess Kate uh, as they continue their their visit to Boston?
17: Well, their palace has made a statement about this incident, but they are doing as royals do, and they're keeping calm and carrying on, as I understand it. Uh, They don't want to be distracted from their core mission here, which is uh, promoting solutions uh, to the climate crisis. Uh, say they were here on the coast of Boston, looking at coastal erosion, seeing what's being done to prevent that. They've just left. Uh, and tomorrow's their big night, really. It's the Earthshot Prize. It's where it's something that he's worked towards uh, for months. He says it is his Super Bowl. It's about finding solutions to the climate crisis and trying to help them become a reality. So the big prize winners get a million dollars each. She's utterly focused on that hoping that these other stories won't necessarily go away, but they can do enough to resolve them long term, frankly.
1: All right, Max Foster in Boston, traveling uh, with the uh, prince and princess. Thank you so much. Coming up, the Supreme Court decision this afternoon, uh, having a direct impact on President Biden's plans to cancel millions of dollars in student loan debt. How might this affect you? Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and this hour, former President Obama headed to Georgia to help Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. Can Obama's closing message make a difference? Only five days out from this competitive Senate runoff election. This as an ex girlfriend of Herschel Walker comes forward with new claims against him. Plus, an anonymous protester in China putting his or her life on the line to try to explain why the demonstrations across the country had to happen. How far? They had to go to keep their identity protected, and signs that the communist nation may be getting the message. But we start with news just into CNN. The top two lawyers from the Trump White House have been ordered to testify again as part of the Justice Department's investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. A federal judge just handing down the order for former White House counsel Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin. We're going to start our coverage with CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, these two men have already testified, so why do they have to do it again?
16: That's right, Jake. They have testified, but the former president has been uh, making these claims of executive and attorney-client privilege, which means that behind the scenes in, in, in the federal courthouse, a judge has been having to hear this litigation between the Justice Department, which has been asking for uh, these men to come back in and answer questions that they had declined to answer as a result of the former president's privilege claim. so now what we understand has happened is that uh, a judge has given a ruling which uh, means that they have to come back and answer additional questions Uh, of course the the former president still has the right to appeal this ruling by uh, the the federal judge who's overseeing the grand jury Uh, obviously jake you know the importance of the the testimony from these two men they are top White House lawyers uh, during the the, during the key period there as the former president was trying to overturn the election results. uh, They saw a lot. They heard a lot. They are very important witnesses. And the former president has been busy trying to block their testimony. So we'll see whether they can come in before Trump uh, gets to the appeals court.
1: And and also, Evan, on on a separate but related issue, members of the January 6th uh, Select House Committee are scheduled to have a key meeting tomorrow. Tell, Tell us more about what we know about this meeting.
16: Well, one of the uh, top items on the agenda, uh, Jake, is this uh, question of whether they are going to do referrals, criminal referrals, to the Justice Department, uh, and so the question has been hanging uh, certainly over during the, during, the, during the course of the months of this investigation. And one of the things we heard from Benny Thompson, the chairman of the of the committee, uh, is that uh, anyone who came before the committee is. Uh, possible uh, for them to, to send a referral over if they believe uh, that there was any perjury, if there was any obstruction uh, and any witness inter- intimidation. Those are the things that the committee has been very, very concerned about. They also, he's also talked about uh, the issue of, of releasing some of the evidence, some of the transcripts uh, of what they've gathered as part of this. They, they, they've made clear that they want to release everything. And one of their concerns, Jake, is the question of whether once they cease to exist, whether Republicans might try to release some of that and perhaps cherry pick uh, some of the findings. Zoe Lofgren, uh, one of the members of the committee, addressed some of that with uh, CNN this morning. Well, they've been pretty clear that they'd like to undermine the work that we've done, but we're gonna prevent that. We're going to release all the information we've collected so it cannot be selectively edited and spun. And, Jake, uh, we know that, uh, for instance, there are some witnesses who've come in uh, anonymously. The committee members say that one of the things they're going to do is they're going to redact the names of those uh, people and then release that testimony. Of course, one of the things of big importance, Jake, you know, in this building uh, is the access that the Justice Department has been asking for months and months and months for this committee to turn over these transcripts. It looks like the prosecutors here are going to be able to get those, uh, get that testimony when we are able to see it, the public. All right, and Evan,
1: we're also learning that the Justice Department has subpoenaed a documentary filmmaker, Alex Holder, for footage that he shot for the documentary, Unprecedented, I think Discovery ran that months ago. They're giving Holder the option to show up before a grand jury or to hand over the requested material. Tell us more about that.
16: Well, right, so this testimony, this, um, this material is very key because obviously the committee has had access to this for several months. And the Justice Department is is keen to see some of what uh, Alex Holder was able to see behind the scenes, Uh, uh, Jake. He was uh, able to get people like Roger Stone, some of the people who were uh, participating, who ended up participating in the protest on January 6th. Uh, There's a lot of behind-the-scenes footage that I think uh, is very clear prosecutors want to be able to take a look at before uh, you know, they wrap up their uh, criminal investigation. Those are things that are very important to the special counsel, Jack Smith, who is now taking over this investigation.
1: All right, Evan Perez, lots of news going on. Thank you so much on Capitol Hill. Democratic leaders Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer are stepping down from their leadership positions, but Congressman Jim Clyburn will keep a job in Democratic leadership. This, despite a last-minute challenge from Democratic Congressman David Cicilline. CNN's Manu Raju joins us now. And Manu, you just spoke. With Congressman Cicilline. Why did he challenge Clyburn?
3: Yeah, he told me that he believed that the House Democrats needed to have a spot at the leadership table from someone from the LGBTQ community. He said that this will be the first time in six years that someone from that community has not been represented by House Democrats. So he did announce a bid yesterday, even though. Uh, Jim Clyburn had announced a couple of weeks ago that he, in fact, would run for this position, what represents the number four position in the House Democratic Caucus. Now, he said he ultimately decided to step aside because he got assurances from House Democrats that they would to include some sort of position from for a member of that community within on their leadership team. He said that it's still being formulated. He said it's important, particularly given attacks that have been leveled from Republicans against some members of that community, namely the trans community. Now, after Cicilline decided to step Aside, Clyburn was in fact elected by unanimously by the House Democratic Caucus earlier today. And Jake, this all comes as a relative very smooth transition has occurred in the aftermath of Nancy Pelosi stepping aside two weeks ago from running the caucus that she has led for the past two decades. As soon as he stepped aside, you mentioned Steny Hoyer, who was a number two for a long time, who had thought about running for the number one position, decided not to do that. Jim Clyburn, also, he was the number three in the last Congress. Now he's going to be the number four. That paved the way for a succession, all taking shape, all being elected unanimously. Hakeem Jeffries will be the first black leader of any caucus in Congress, followed by Catherine Clark, who will be the new number two, and Pete Aguilar from California will be the top three members, with Clyburn as the number four. So, Jake, their team now being being set as the House Democrats are preparing for a different role, life in the minority, life in the opposition party, as House Republicans themselves are still trying to figure out whether Kevin McCarthy will have the votes to become speaker on January 3rd.
1: All right, Manu Raju, thank you so much. A big new legal setback for the Biden administration tops our money lead right now. The Supreme Court is keeping a block on the president's student loan forgiveness plan. Let's bring in CNN's Jessica Schneider. Jessica, Tell us more about this, because it now seems it's going to be many more months before we know the the fate of the president's uh, debt relief plan.
18: Right. So it's on hold until at least February, Jake. So the good news for the Biden administration here is that the Supreme Court is actually fast tracking these arguments. They'll hear them in February, which is quicker than they would have. The bad news is that this loan forgiveness program, it remains on hold. So for all those student borrowers who are counting on maybe between ten dollars and $20,000 in debt relief, they won't be getting that anytime soon. They'll have to wait until the Supreme Court ultimately makes a decision. And the administration here, they've been sending out these letters basically telling students, you're not going to get the relief that we had thought you would. So the Secretary of Education sent out the letters to those who were approved. 16 million people have already been approved so far saying that, unfortunately, a number of lawsuits have been filed challenging the program, which have blocked our ability to discharge your debt at present. Those court challenges continue with the Supreme Court hearing the arguments. There is a silver lining here, though. The Biden administration had put in place a loan pause. That was back because of COVID. People, certain borrowers, didn't have to pay their loans. They've now extended that pause, so certain borrowers will not have to pay any loans back, and they said that will be in effect for 60 days after all litigation concludes. So that will be in effect at least until February, possibly as late as May or June here.
1: But on that block, um, at least until February, when the Supreme Court hears and probably... Beyond, because then they have to make a ruling. They have to make a decision. Does the Biden administration have any other recourse?
18: They don't. This was the end of the line here. The Fifth Circuit ruled against them actually just last night. The Eighth Circuit ruled against them. They had gone to the Supreme Court to say, we need some emergency relief here. Can you take off these injunctions and let this program go into effect? The Supreme Court said, we're not going to lift these injunctions. We're not going to let this program go back into effect. We will throw you a bone. We'll hear arguments on the case But there's really no other recourse at this point. The Biden administration will have to wait till February to argue in front of the justices.
1: All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the Georgia Senate runoff and the new accusations against Herschel Walker from a different ex-girlfriend coming just five days before the end of this runoff election and lawyers in commercial after commercial on the hunt for any victims of contaminated water at marine base camp lejeune cnn also started digging what we learned about many victims who may be out there that's ahead In our politics lead, we're just five days away from the rematch between Georgia Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker, early voting in the Peach State, already crossing the one million mark after several days of record numbers. And today in Atlanta, former President Barack Obama hits the campaign trail for Warnock in just over an hour. CNN's Eva McKen joins us live from that city. And Eva, what is the Warnock campaign hoping Obama can provide for them?
19: Well, Jake, President Obama is here to, to drive up turnout. Tomorrow is the last day of that critically early voting period in the state before all of the votes are counted next week. The last time Obama came here, I think it was the most animated that I've seen uh, Democrats in this state. A similar energy on display here tonight. Uh, but, uh, but Obama not only has a physical presence here, he's also appearing on television. Take a look.
20: Georgia, serious times call for special leaders. Leaders you can trust. Leaders who are driven by something bigger than politics. That's why you need to re-elect my friend and your senator, Reverend Raphael Warnock.
19: So there are still a small number of voters that both uh, Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker can capture. Uh, We have seen so far that there are some folks coming out voting in this runoff, registered voters in Georgia that did not vote in the general election, but are voting now.
1: And Eva, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham campaigned with Herschel Walker today. Walker's facing yet another allegation uh, of domestic violence in this case. What is the Walker campaign saying about that?
19: Yeah, a woman has come forward uh, detailing allegations of uh, being threatened and violence in 2005. Uh, For its part, the Walker campaign not commenting on this, but this is significant because this is a part of a pattern. Uh, This is not the only woman to come forward and make these allegations. We have heard uh, these similar allegations from Walker's past partners uh, as well. Listen the campaign not saying anything and also worth noting that Herschel Walker has not held a media availability, has not spoken to the general press, Jake, in two months.
1: Two months. Certainly says quite a bit. Eva McCand in Atlanta. Thank you so much. Let's discuss with my August uh, panel. And Heidi, <laughs> uh, let me start with you because in an interview with CNN, Georgia Republican Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, uh, who is a Republican, I'm sorry, Heidi, you're moving <laughs> over <book there>. here. both <laughs> uh, um, No, 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 I got it. Uh, uh, he said he couldn't bring himself uh, to vote for Herschel Walker. Take a listen.
8: I showed up to vote this morning. I was one of those folks who got in line and spent about an hour waiting. And, uh, you know, it was the most disappointing ballot I've ever stared at in my entire life uh, since I started voting. You know, I had two candidates that I just couldn't couldn't find anything that that made sense for me to put my my vote behind. And so I walked out of that that ballot box uh, showing up to vote, but not voting for either one of them. So this is the runoff election.
1: So it's just these two on the ballot, uh, I believe. Um, In November, uh, Governor Kemp, who was reelected, he got more than 200,000 votes than Herschel Walker. Um, this would seem to suggest, and you know, especially with control of the Senate not on the line, uh, bad news for Walker, I would say. That's
12: the key question, was whether the same voters who showed up for Kemp would turn out for Walker, plus right, the folks who didn't even turn out. So this is, a, this is a bad omen. All of the energy appears to be on the Democratic side, at least if you look at some of the key barometers here, including the spending. He's been outspent by almost two to one in this race. Now all of these new revelations coming out that just really kind of add to this drip-drip of concerns about his character and his behavior. Uh, And, uh, you know, it it looks like it might be a a win for the Democrats. (laughs) But,
4: But I would also say, you know, Democrats have... We've been through this before. I was part of the polling team in 2020. We know how to do a runoff election or a special election in Georgia. And it is exactly as Ava said. We were able to turn out voters who did not turn out in November of 2020, right? Because you... And for Georgia, you can also make the case. I mean, Georgian voters understand their vote literally changed the direction of this country in 2020. So in terms of making the case to people that it matters, the other thing I'll say is, you know, there's a conversation, quite frankly, going on among African-American voters about which of these two men do you want representing black men on the national stage in the Senate of the United States of America. And that does not Favor Walker.
1: What is, what is the argument uh, that Republicans are, are telling uh, their <laughs> voters in Georgia to try to get them to to turn out for Herschel Walker? I, mean, I could see it being more compelling if, yeah. if control of the Senate was on the line, right. but it's not.
5: Yeah, you're exactly correct, Jake. And So, um, you know, lieutenant governor there, kind of depressing to hear him come out and say he couldn't couldn't take one for the team, right? If if the one of the leaders of the party in the state of Georgia can't take one for the team. What's the average uh, you know, average Republican voter going to do? He's a
1: very conservative, no, he's very religious conservative yeah, he's, Republican. I spent, yeah. I
5: spent some time in the green room with him. He's a, a, really good he's guy. a very nice guy. Yeah. And um, you know, I talked to Governor Kemp about this a, a few weeks ago at the RJ in, in Orlando and said, look, if you're not knocking on doors and, and dragging the people who voted you to the polls, Herschel Walker's not going to win. And that's what's, what's going to be needed here. You know, Kemp is, Brian Kemp needs to convince the people that voted for him they need to vote for Herschel. They can't, that doesn't happen. Herschel doesn't win.
1: And, and Yasmin, uh, obviously, Walker facing a new allegation of domestic violence. Uh, this is not the first. This is in the Daily Beast. A former girlfriend making several alarming allegations, detailing an incident. What he said: She says Walker grew enraged, put his hands on her neck, swung his fist at her. Um, I mean, this is just the latest detail uh, of, of a guy who has shown and admitted to mentally unstable behavior in the past.
21: Yeah, absolutely, and I think you know even if he did come out with a denial, it would be kind of hollow at this point because they're they all of these allegations have followed such a consistent pattern that it's hard to dismiss them. This woman also put her name on the record to this. This wasn't some anonymous accuser. And then of course you had right before the midterm elections in November, these women coming out and saying he he paid for their abortions just as he came out with a very sort of stringent uh, stance on abortion, not no, wanting
1: no exceptions,
21: exact right, no exceptions, right. which is actually the extreme of the Republican Party. Most yeah. Republicans are not there. So I think there's been a string of, of damaging behavior and allegations from Walker that is making it hard for even people like Jeff Duncan to throw their support behind him. Yeah.
1: So let's talk about uh, the people that are not campaigning in Georgia right now, because uh, you see Lindsey Graham, but you don't see Donald Trump. You see Barack Obama, you don't see Joe Biden. Explain to me the wisdom. I understand Barack Obama can, can, can rally I young voters, out rally progressives, rally African American voters. Yeah. But, but Joe Biden won Georgia. Barack yes. Obama never won Georgia.
4: But this is a turnout game, right, at this point in, in this in this runoff, right? It is all about getting to the numbers and particularly among African American voters. So who do you bring in? You bring in Barack Obama. As as Ava said, he was a great closer just a few weeks ago. And so it makes perfect sense to me. It's not a we're not at the place where we're having a policy conversation. That might be one that you would bring Biden into or the vice president to talk about (laughs) reproductive freedom, which we know is still very much top of mind for voters in Georgia. But this is all about turnout and it is all about young voters and African-American voters. That is the sweet spot. And
1: why not
5: bring Trump in? I mean, you saw why not bring Trump because they're down 300,000 votes because of Trump, right? I mean, (laughs) if Trump wouldn't have beaten Brian Kemp with a club, right, Uh, the governor, you know, Herschel may be maybe the senator at this point, right? I mean, again, the Kemp voters didn't vote for Herschel. Because of Trump. And I think because of Trump or because? Yeah, well, I think, no, I, I think because. Wow, it's, well, more than that. It, it's a little more complicated. character. Yeah. Right but, <laughs> but, but, you know, largely he, you know. Trump anointed Herschel Walker Exactly. Is the so, bottom line. So, yeah. right. And so I think they were, look, we saw this in the, in, in the exit polls. Independence broke for Democrats because they were afraid of extremism, afraid yeah. of those kind of Trump esque candidates. And so Herschel's the hand picked Trump candidate. If you're a suburban voter in, in suburban Atlanta and you're voting for Brian Kemp, they give a little bit of a tough time voting for the Trump-anointed candidate. And so Trump coming in now isn't going to help Herschel. Again, Brian Kemp needs to be knocking on doors and dragging people out. If he doesn't do it, Herschel's not going to win. And right. I think that's why Trump's staying away as well. So if he does lose, he can blame McConnell and Kemp right. and not take any blame for it. What do you, what do you make of it all?
12: You look at the lack of spending and the lack of Kemp really kicking into high gear here, and it's almost as if Republicans have resigned this, given that the motivation on the Democratic side is just so significant for what is at stake, because you say, oh, well, that's just one more seat. Democrats already have the majority, oh, but really it makes a difference in terms important of... on apportionment, on committees, and really, really nominations, things, big deals. Um, yeah. Committee assignments. Right. And so there really is just a much more concerted push on the Democratic side. Mm. And, look, isn't that depressing? Wouldn't you be depressed if you were working uh, on the campaign? Wait, I'm, I'm depressed and I'm not minute. working on
5: Heidi, I'm depressed right now I'm not even <laughs> working on the campaign,
1: okay? <laughs> yeah, can I say, I'm still depressed leaders. from a couple of weeks ago. But, I mean, the, the idea that Democrats control the Senate uh, 50-50, which they do as of right now. But the truth of the matter is, and and uh, and we, we've all been in this town, some of us longer than, longer than others, David. Uh, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about Oops. David and me. David and me. <laughs> um, wow. But, but this, I mean... Somebody could retire from the Senate. I mean, somebody could. I mean, things happen. 50-50 is not a guarantee. I mean, so I am just kind of surprised that there isn't more of a push. I saw a pitch from uh, Kelly Loeffler, the former Republican senator from Georgia. And her pitch was she was trying to get Republicans to rally. Like, the only reason that there hasn't been uncontrollable spending, although other Republicans would argue there have been, uh, is because Joe Manchin's there. But if you if you have 51 Democratic votes, then you take away the power from Manchin and all of a sudden there's going to be right. all that. I mean, it was a complicated argument, but at least it was an argument.
21: Right. I mean, I think there's there are a couple of things at play. One is for Republicans, maybe they would be willing to spend more if Herschel Walker was a better candidate and they were more energized. But I think the fact that they can't gain control of the Senate and he's really kind of a drain on the party, it seems to for a lot of more traditional Republicans makes it harder to really kind of rally behind this campaign. And then I think for Democrats, like Heidi said, they see a lot to gain from having 51 seats. Mm -hmm. I'm not totally convinced that without Manchin you'd have Uncontrollable spending. I mean, they still have Chris Cinema to contend sure, right. with. They've still, I mean, fifty-one is not exactly. A, thank,
5: thank God, if you're a Republican, by the way. Thank God. <laughs> right.
21: It's it's not exactly a, a a decisive margin, but it does give them a little bit more room to maneuver on some of these issues. And and yeah. I mean, you only you, you only have margin to, to lose one vote. That's not a lot, but at least you don't need to to secure every single vote. And they're always short Mansion or Cinema.
1: I also just want to read this quote, Karen. It's from former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, also from Georgia. He has this new warning for Republicans about 2024. He said says, Republicans must learn to quit underestimating President Joe Biden. Conservatives' hostility to the Biden administration on our terms mm. tends to blind us to just how effective Biden has been on his terms. An interesting yeah. comment from him.
4: So I agree with the overall premise of what he said. People have been underestimating Joe Biden to their peril for a very long time. I remember all the conversation about how he'll never run for president. He'll never be president. Oh, well.
1: He'll never get the nomination. He'll never get the yeah. nomination. Right.
4: I mean, just the long list. That being said reading what he wrote, what Gingrich wrote, was, it's delusional. It is exactly, talk about extremism, talk about all the things well, we that we took Americans, we took
1: the most palatable section.
4: I know. There was a whole <laughs> part about, that was the most palatable. There was a yeah. whole section about, I wrote it down, um, shared American culture. The Republican Party has a lack of understanding about what that means right now, particularly in a country that is, is basically majority-minority, where women and reproductive freedom is a top issue, where younger voters, clearly there is potential for them to be a powerful political voting bloc. And you're talking talking about traditional values and looking at the past. What do you you, say?
5: Newt's on to something because we got smoked, right? I mean, clearly, this midterm was a complete drubbing, right? Republicans missed it. We missed everything. But we're he says mis- you mis- missed
4: it because of all the reasons that you missed it. That's my well, point. Well, no, no,
5: obviously look, I mean I mean I'm not so sure it's Joe Biden has some sort of magical powers, right? I think you had, you know, a, a very effective Congress. Don't underestimate the power of Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, she she, has been she was very it. very powerful. Schumer, the Congress was very disciplined. They did they, they did a lot of things they wanted to do. They jammed things through. So I'm not sure it's all Biden, but no, don't underestimate the Democratic Party, I think, or some of the messages they had. Yeah.
1: That would be a better message. All I right. Think think thanks once and, one, one and all for being hey. here. Democracy, also <laughs> a very important <laughs> issue. And democracy was, won. It was on the ballot. It that was, that at was one, certainly I on the ballot and won, uh, especially <laughs> in our home Commonwealth. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> George's runoff between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker. It's now only five days away, and we're going to bring you special coverage that night. It starts at 4 p.m. Eastern Tuesday. Stay with us also ahead. The great lengths a protester in China is taking to speak to CNN to share why recent demonstrations in that communist country had to happen. Stay with us. In our world lead, after rare protests swept across China, several cities in that country are now easing some COVID restrictions as a top official signals a softer approach, leading to speculation that perhaps, perhaps an end to the zero COVID policy could be in sight. But... As CNN's Selena Wang reports from Beijing right now, the potential change in strategy comes after the Chinese government cracked down swiftly and harshly on the protests and tightened censorship.
22: Silence will not protect you. This
20: person, one of thousands across China, willing to put their lives on the line to speak out. Years of pent-up anger over China's draconian COVID lockdowns boiling over into protests.
22: I felt like I lost control of my life because of this COVID policy. Nobody is telling you when this is going to end. We are limited physically, and now we're limited mentally. We are forbidden to express our ideas. For some, that
20: cathartic emotional release
22: spilled into calls for political changes.
20: Some even chanted for Xi Jinping to step down.
22: He's the one who's responsible for this uh, whole policy thing. But for me, first thing first, I want the zero COVID policy gone. And if we have more freedom of speech and freedom of press, of course, that would be great.
20: What do you think
22: you guys achieved by participating in that protest? if you don't demonstrate if you don't show them your voice your idea they would never know and this
20: is what happened next china's security apparatus swiftly smothered the protests cnn is shielding the protesters identity because of fears of retribution even conducting the interview in a car to avoid tracking from authorities. Police are calling and visiting the homes of some protesters. And in Shanghai, randomly stopping people to check their phones on streets and what appears to be in subways. Protesters say they're looking for VPNs needed to use banned apps like Twitter or Telegram, which some protesters use to communicate. Another protester told CNN, I'm afraid we cannot hold protests like this again in the future. There are always undercover agents in our telegram group. Every few beaters on the street, there are police and police dogs. The whole atmosphere is chilling. I'm in the center of a protest in Beijing right now. They're chanting that they don't want COVID tests. They want freedom. Less than 24 hours after this, we drove back to that spot. Police cars as far as the eye could see. Then a few days later, it's pretty much back to normal, like nothing ever happened. And that is precisely the goal of the Communist Party. CNN has verified protests erupted in at least 17 Chinese cities, but every single one has been stamped out. In Guangzhou, residents destroyed COVID testing booths. Police in riot gear immediately swarm in. They marched through a market, shouting at people to leave, firing tear gas to disperse protesters, pushing through with shields and making arrests. Authorities have gone into overdrive to censor all evidence
22: of unrest online. That white piece of paper actually represents the censorship and uh, all the deleted contents. You cannot arrest us for just holding a white paper. I still have that white paper. I protested and I put it in my diary as a souvenir to show my future generations that you should always fight for your rights and never let your voice be silenced. How does it make you feel, though, that the government even censored pictures of people holding white papers? By doing this, they're just going to make the crowd even angrier. Instead of trying to silence us, they should really focus and try to think why this happened.
20: Authorities are silencing them, but it seems they are listening. Right after the riots in Guangzhou, the city started lifting some lockdowns, removing COVID roadblocks. Unsealed! We are unsealed! A man screams with excitement as he bikes through streets being opened up. But so many others are still counting down their days in lockdowns and quarantine, wondering when zero COVID will really end. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing.
1: Remarkable courage. Some breaking news just in: a court ruling put putting a hold on the special master reviewing documents taken from Donald Trump's property at Mar-a-Lago. We'll bring that to you live next. Just into CNN, an appeals court has halted the special master's review of those classified documents seized from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. Let's get straight to CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, am I right to interpret this as a victory for the Justice Department?
16: That's right, this is a big win. Uh, Jake, for the for the Justice Department, which has been looking to get rid of this, these restrictions that were first imposed by a judge in Palm Beach uh, who appointed a special master, a third party, to go through thousands of, of documents, government documents, and to set some aside. According to the former president, he thought that some of these were subject to uh, his claim of, of pr- uh, privilege, uh, including executive privilege, attorney-client privilege. According to this three-judge three panel, that can't uh, continue. And I'll read you just a part of what they said in their, in their ruling. It says, we cannot write a rule that allows any subject of a search warrant to block government investigations after the execution of a warrant. And, and so, and, it's, and it continues saying, nor can we write a rule that allows only former presidents to do so. In, us, in essence, what the former president, Jake, has been doing is trying to argue for special treatment uh, because he's a former president and saying that, The Justice Department uh, exceeded its authority and that he should be getting some kind of privilege uh, because he was the former president. And, of course, the FBI, the Justice Department has argued that they should be able to look at all of these documents as part of this criminal investigation into the mishandling of classified documents, documents which were found and retrieved from Mar-a-Lago in that uh, extraordinary search that happened back in August. I should note, Jake, that this is a three-judge panel, two of whom were appointed by Donald Trump.
1: Interesting. Evan Perez, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN legal analyst Carrie Cordero. Carrie, uh, presumably this will speed up the investigation. What does this mean for prosecutors?
14: It should speed up the ability of the investigators to now review all of the information without having to go through the special master. But I think the most important point, um, just based on the sections that I'm hearing Evan read from the appellate decision so far, is that the appellate court really took seriously the Justice Department's um, view and arguments that this special master appointment that was made in the Mar-a-Lago case for the former president really would have the potential of disrupting investigations nationwide. In other words, that the former president wasn't necessarily entitled to special treatment um, and that normal investigations, this is not the time, this early stage for um, individuals to Challenge them. And so it really, it was so unusual, the appointment by the district court of the special master to begin with. And it sounds like the 11th circuit is really returning the situation to regular order.
1: So this is obviously primarily a victory for the Justice Department and a a defeat for Trump and his lawyers. Uh, It also reverses that ruling from Judge Cannon in Florida. And and there have been, fairly or not, a, a number of questions about her rulings. She was appointed by Trump. Her rulings in the eyes of many Legal observers seem to favor Donald Trump. How do you see it?
14: Well, I think the issue is that, first of all, with respect to the judiciary across the board, um, there have been appointees by the former President Trump um, who have handled lots of the January 6th cases, um, who are doing their job equitably and fairly. And so I want to be careful not to um, you know, suggest that All judges appointed by former President Trump are therefore going to rule in his favor. But this particular appointment of the special master by Judge Cannon um, in this case on the Mar-a-Lago search was really unusual. It really did appear like it was special treatment for a former president, not a situation that any other individual in the country, if they would have been subject to a physical search by the FBI based on probable cause and a warrant issued by a federal judge, um, nobody else would have gotten a special master.
1: And quickly, if you could, this is a complicated case for prosecutors, given at the heart of the case, it revolves around highly secret government records. What challenges does that present for prosecutors?
14: Well, national security cases are really hard. I mean, they, they take a long time. Any cases involving classified information uh, take a long time. They're complicated. The Justice Department has to make decisions if they want to even prosecute a case, if they want to bring an indictment, if they think there's sufficient evidence, then they have to make additional decisions about whether they want to risk the exposure of classified information that might facilitate the prosecution of those cases. So the classified information aspect just adds an additional layer of complexity for the Justice Department.
1: All right, Kerry Cordero, thank you so much. Contamination at Camp Lejeune dates back decades, now commercials are looking for victims with health conditions that might be related to that contaminated water. What's CNN found that might reveal the severity of the problem? That's next. Our buried lead now, that's what we call stories we think are not getting sufficient attention. For more than 30 years, thousands of U.S. service members and their families stationed at the Marine Corps Camp Lejeune in North Carolina were exposed to contaminated water. As CNN's Nick Watt reports, veterans and family members, many of them now with cancer diagnoses potentially caused by this contamination, while well, they're trying to hold the military
4: accountable. If you were stationed or working at Camp Lejeune, you may be eligible for significant financial compensation. Please give us a call. You've
7: probably seen the commercials. Lawyers lining up to help veterans in return for a slice of a potentially huge money pie. Huge. Because the water at this vast marine base in North Carolina was contaminated over 30-plus years by an off-base dry cleaners, leaky storage tanks, and chemical dumping, 1953 to 1987. Potentially, how big is this? Over a million people were likely exposed to this toxic water during that time period. And what does that mean in terms of damages? I mean, it's off the charts. Greg Sexton's mom saw one of the commercials, their first inkling that Camp Lejeune's water might be to blame for what happened to him.
13: So I spent the summer there in 1977. I was eight years old. I was spending time with my father, who was in the Marines. He was a sergeant in the Marines. When I was 17, I was diagnosed with with what's called a Wilms tumor.
7: He had kidney cancer, one of the diseases now potentially linked to those chemicals in the water on the base. A base where Ann Johnson lived with her Marine Sergeant dad, where she met her future husband in high school, where she gave birth in 1984. They didn't bring her to you immediately, no?
19: They did not. I guess they were trying to prepare me for what she looked like.
7: Anne's baby, Jaqueta lived just seven weeks. Aged 18, and forced into an horrific decision to let her daughter go.
19: I looked at my husband and he just dropped his head, um, not knowing what to say. And so I looked up at the doctor and I said, just, just let her go.
7: Birth defects also now potentially linked to those chemicals in the water on the base. Here is the history. In 1980, tests found water is highly contaminated. In 1981, water highly contaminated with other chlorinated hydrocarbons, solvents. The most contaminated wells weren't closed for four years after further testing. In February 1985, PCE, a dry-cleaning solvent, was measured at 43 times the current EPA limit for drinking water here in Tarawa Terrace, which houses enlisted men and their families. Two months later, the base commander sent them all a letter. Two of the wells that supply to our terrace have had to be taken offline because minute trace amounts of several organic chemicals have been detected in the water. No health warning, just a request to reduce domestic water use because supply was now limited. Apparently, a mass health warning didn't come until much later, 14 years later. Certain areas water was super contaminated. Other areas, it wasn't. The Marine Corps barracks, right? The the bachelor barracks, that was in the areas where the water was tainted. Large sections of the base used by officers and enlisted alike were affected. Van Arsdale asked his 6,000 or so clients, what rank were you when you were exposed to the water at Camp Lejeune? 96.3% of respondents say they were enlisted. 3.7% were officers. Worth noting, there were always more enlisted men than officers on base. An act of Congress passed in August allows Marines and their kin to file civil claims.
13: Some simple acknowledgement would be um, my wish for everything moving forward.
7: The Navy has six months to process their claims. They've received almost 5,000 claims as of today. They have not yet done anything about any of them. Do you think any of the claims that you filed so far will actually be processed within the six-month window? As of today, I do not. And if not, claims could end up in a courthouse in the Eastern District of North Carolina. But litigation could take years to even get inside a courthouse. It really could. I think that they are too worried about how to defend themselves, then focus on what they should be doing, and that's to make these lives better of of the men and women who are suffering today.
19: Rather than it being me, that it could have been the water that I consumed and the government could be responsible for what I went through. My ex-husband went on to remarry and have a couple of more children, and there was nothing wrong with them. Jaquetta had to be me (laughs) because his other kids were fine, so it had to be me.
7: So, for Anne Johnson to officially know it was the water, that would be a great comfort for her. Now, the Navy unit handling claims told me this. The initial step includes in-processing and initial evaluation. Currently, the Navy is primarily focused on this step. At this stage, no claims are fully adjudicated. The Department of Navy is committed to resolving all claims related to this matter in a fair, thorough, and timely manner. Now, the Marine Corps declined our request for an interview, but they told me this. We care deeply about our service members, veterans, civilian workforce and families, including those who have experienced health issues they believe are related to their time in the service. The issue here is there are a lot of people right now who are sick, who could use this money right now, not in five years time when maybe they'll be dead.
1: They don't really care about the feelings of the Marine Corps. They need some help. Nick Watt, thank you so much. Appreciate it. These are new images of the volcano erupting in Hawaii. What geologists are now saying about the lava flow there. Stay with us. The lava spewing from Hawaii's Mauna Loa volcano is significantly slowing down, we're told. The USS Geological Survey says it is now moving slower than one mile an hour, the lava. This comes as a U.S. geological survey said lava could cause the Big Island's saddle road to be shut down. That would cut off the east and west parts of the island. But the agency is reiterating that the road could still be shut down within a week if the lava continues to head in the same direction. State health officials are warning of possible health complications from the eruption. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now. Alex Marquardt is in for Wolf Blitzer in The Situation Room. See you tomorrow.